My name is Jared Williams, and this is the Startup Blueprint, the podcast designed for entrepreneurs, startups, and anyone who has ever wanted to turn a good idea into a great business. My guest today is a fitness and nutrition coach. He doesn't have 100,000 clients, he doesn't have a million followers, and he doesn't own his own facility, but he was one of the very first people I knew I wanted to interview for this podcast. What he has done, and it's something that very few people do in life, is periodically stand back, create a clear plan of action, effectively a set of business and life goals, and then execute on that plan. This has resulted in him building an awesome brand, a great business, and importantly, the lifestyle he wants. It's also led him to putting in place some pretty unique marketing strategies. So I decided that I needed something that would make me different. So I decided to vlog uh, daily for 210 days a natural bodybuilding prep, right? And that was gonna be my marketing tool. I didn't really know what it was gonna be, didn't know how it was gonna come across, but I just bought the bloody camera, turned it on, and made videos every single day. That was Gordon Greenhorn, and you are listening to the Startup Blueprint. We start this episode by diving into Gordon's younger years, which, if you didn't quite pick it up, were spent in Scotland. So, take us back to what was life like growing up? Family, friends, school? Uh, you know, I, I kind of toned down the Scottish accent a little bit, I suppose, <laughs> oh for, my God. Uh, for my for my Sassanac friends. Uh, the, where I grew up was rural Aberdeenshire, so um, think of... You know, you could probably actually run outside my mum and dad's house, uh, bollock naked, uh, set fire to things, you know, flood stuff, and no one would know. No one right. would have a clue what's happened. Um, and of course, you've never done Oh, that. many times. <laughs> um, and that's kind of how I grew up, you know. I, I definitely grew up on a, on a farm. Um, two parents who actually ran a, a fruit farm for a number of years, you know, sold to like Marks and Spencers, Tesco's, strawberries, gooseberries, raspberries, so... I suppose there's a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak there somewhere, somewhere in the family. Um, but then they, they went back to work, to work for the public sector. Um, my dad worked for the Scottish Agricultural College and my mum is a biomedical scientist. So, you know, she'll check your samples and whatnot and then tell the doctor what you have and they'll decide how to, how to help you, essentially. And my mum worked for the NHS for 30 odd years and my dad transferred into it's sort of the NHS as well, working on sort of like bone research. But yeah, I grew up in a rural Aberdeenshire, a uh, uh, small primary school with 30 kids in it, I think, total. And that's not my year. That's the, you know, I think I had seven kids in my, to- my entire year. Multiple years in one class? Yeah, like Love three, that. yeah. Um, and I think that was, that allowed me to have a lot of freedom and things, to move around a lot, to really enjoy the countryside, to be outside a lot, you know, be very active. Um, and it, I think it also sheltered me a little bit, which, you know, could be good and bad, certainly from things like alcohol and smoking and drugs and whatnot. Um, you know, I don't think I was even introduced to those type of things until I was in my teenage years. And, and maybe I had a better idea of critical thinking of what was good and bad, maybe. Um, certainly from having that rural lifestyle. Um, and then, yeah, I, had a, I went to school, secondary school for... It's seven years in Scotland, Scotland, six years. Did all my hires and things, and then uh, then wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. You know, a lot of my friends and whatnot had been kind of moved into the university aspect of things. You know, go and do a history degree or a sports and exercise science degree or a uh, even a an engineering degree because that's what Aberdeen is sort of famous for. It's oil and gas. Yeah. 
And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I also didn't want to waste my time. You know, you go to university and I have friends who drop out after a year or two. And it, it kind of, it didn't really make much sense. So I decided to um, get some uh, Scottish Football Association qualifications uh, or certifications, certainly in coaching. I did three of those. Met a friend who was going to go to South Africa and do some coaching out there with a, it was kind of like the gap year kind of time, maybe sort of 12, 13 years ago when people were talking about gap years and it became quite trendy. And I decided to go and do that. And we went to Port Elizabeth and I coached uh, football there for three months to underprivileged kids. Um, and you can imagine a young man at the age of 18 coming from a rural background of Aberdeenshire where, you know, diversity was strawberries, <laughs> I think, really, you know. And to go into somewhere where I think my first experience was going into one of the shanty towns where uh, they sold townships. Wa- townships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, uh, the first experience was uh, women selling chickens. They were live chickens. And I remember sitting there and one of the guys bought one. She just takes out the cage, <laughs> chops its head off and then plucks it for you. And that was it. That was, that was your shopping experience. Wow. Um, and that was quite a, a, a dramatic thing for a young 18-year-old um, coming from that sort of rural background. Uh, and it, it kind of made me think a lot more about the world, you know, and, and, and not about my own little world and think more about the world in terms of what there is and what there isn't and who has and who has not to a certain extent. Um, and also to look at what I have potentially compared to other people. Um, and it's quite a profound time, I think, at that age, 18, going and sort of seeing that and witnessing that and, and meeting people and, and also realizing that we're all kind of the same to a certain extent. You know, we're, we all want to be loved. We all want to give love. We all want to hug and all that kind of stuff and, and make friends. Really, we just live in different parts of the world. Um, That's pretty cool at 18. Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. Um, and I think uh, even now, just thinking about it, you know, I don't think about it much because it's 13 odd years ago, but it was a, a very profound sort of time over those mm. four months. Then I did about a month of traveling along the garden route, which was fantastic. And then I, I came home and I continued to work in the, uh, in the sort of food and beverage aspect of things. Still kind of un- unknown kind of what I wanted to do. Still enjoying fitness. Um, I played football and rugby and whatnot at school for many years until I was about 17, 18. Decided I couldn't really play it too much anymore because of potentials for injury and having to earn money and whatnot. And I just kind of fell out of the the love for it because I'd played it for so many years. And I discovered the gym. Uh, decided to start training, going to the gym, uh, as, as a young man does, you know, trying to uh, find his way in the world and uh, compare himself a little bit. I can lift X, you can lift X. Well, someone's better. Um, and I was good at it. So I kind of stuck at it for a long time. And then I remember, sorry, I'm, I'm just talking here, but yeah. I remember watching this uh, program called Babyface Bodybuilders. Um, some of your listeners, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of them might know a famous thing of fish in a rice cake. Yes. This is a fish in a rice cake. And yeah, a fish. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the program. And I watched it and I thought this was really interesting. You know, I, quite, I liked Arnold, I liked Strongman, I liked all these kind of uh, magazines and whatnot. And I thought, you know what, I could probably do that. And the variety of the diet as well, fish. Yeah, yeah, loads of variety, yeah. Um, but I think it gave me a bit of purpose for the gym as well. You know, I have a, a goal to head for, so I researched some competitions, uh, tried to find out what I could do, where I could do it. And, and then I put together a diet. I think I was, what was the age now? 19, I think. Put together a diet, set out a show. It was a, an untested bodybuilding competition and uh, competed. I uh, placed, I think, fourth out of like 12 in the junior class. I then did a natural competition, which is like a tested aspect of bodybuilding. And I came second. And I thought, you know, I quite like this. This is, this is good. It gave me direction, drive, purpose, lots of different kind of things. 
um, motivation to want to go to the gym. And then in 2009, I competed again. Uh, I won uh, Junior Natural Mr. Scotland, if you will. Um, with that, I also got chatting to gym manager uh, that, or the gym I worked at, which was a Nuffield Health, I think at the time. I think it was a living well. I think they were bought by Nuffield Health. Um, anyway, he interviewed me for the newsletter, got put in the newsletter, and then uh, he was really interested in training, so he, uh, he wanted to know how to train, what to train, because he was, he was a, a gym manager of a health club, not necessarily a personal trainer. And, and you know, many, m- many years later, he actually became a client, an online client for many years, and he's actually he's called uh, the fitness guy. His name's Steve Bradley. Um, he works with sort of... Uh, 40-something women in terms of groups and whatnot and weight loss. But anyway, so um, he then sent me a random email asking me if I was ever interested in becoming a personal trainer. And I had been really interested in becoming a personal trainer. It was really kind of a, I was quite interested in it. I wanted to be it. But the problem was, A, the cost of a course. Uh, B, the, also the hit in a salary from where I was coming from. You know, I'd started to accrue bills and whatnot that you normally pay, you know, heat and the like heat and lighting, electric, rent, these kind of things, and uh, I needed to pay them. So it was kind of, there was some trepidation of wanting to do it, but then this kind of opportunity came up and I thought, you know what, let's just, let's do it. I mean, I think a lot of the aspects and decisions that I've made is really looking at things as, what is the worst that can happen to me? What's the worst thing that can happen? And in reality, uh, I'm lucky enough to have two parents who are still together, who still have good, did have good jobs before they got retired, and I, I easily could have just moved back in with them if I had to. You know, but I would have learned so much giving it a try, you know, trying to succeed and uh, giving it a go. And that's what I did. Um, so I took on the job, went from like a, a, a moderate salary in Aberdeen of like 20 odd, 24 grand a year or something with some tips to like, uh, I think it was minimum salary back then, like 11, 11 and a half thousand a year. And I think net after tax, uh, I was 900 pounds a month or something like that, which was, uh, which was pretty tight <laughs> for the first three months. And then, uh, then I went from there, uh, it built up, doing lots of free sessions, just talking, being there, turning up every day, and to the point where you know, I started to, to get lots of clients, maintain those clients. That turned into me being sort of the top of the, the sales leaderboard, if you will, in terms of delivering the amount of sessions it was. That turned into me delivering more than anyone else in the whole of Nuffield, to then being invited down to t- talk to the directors about uh, interesting ideas and how they can forward and better improve personal training and how they can build the business for it. So what was your special source then back then in terms of acquiring clients? Me. <laughs> I think just, you know, I'd obviously, uh, there are three sort of aspects I kind of looked at things from a, 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 a acquiring client perspective. The way I looked is important. You know, I went to the gym, I regularly trained clients or, or prospective clients could see that I trained, you know, I was a relatively strong, I was committed, um, and I, I looked like I exercised, you know, I kind of looked a bit like a, a rugby player, I, uh, and that m- must have then worked within their mind that I kind of knew what I was talking about, you know, I think that, that was an important aspect of it. I, I walked the walk, you know, you, you're not going to go into a dental surgery where the dentist has rotten teeth, I mean, it doesn't really make sense, does it? So that's where I started. And I think then the, the second aspect of it was um, ensuring the client had w- was my every focus. So little things like I, I don't use I didn't use my mobile phone on the gym floor. You know, I took a stopwatch on the gym floor with me. I would never sit down in sessions. I'd be standing, talking, you know, working with the client. You know, if, everything and anything that I could to make sure that that hour was their focus. You know, they're paying me when they could be going out for dinner with a friend. 
They could be uh, buying a new television. They could be buying, you know, they could be saving up for their, their kids' education. They could be doing so many other things, but they've decided that they want to spend that money on me for that hour. And I, have to, I should respect that. I, I personally, I mean, obviously, I really respect that. And it's making me think, and I don't want to, I don't want to go into a rant here, but there's, I, I train down in, uh, I train in gym box. And there's this one trainer and I've been so close. In fact, I've actually gone up to the desk to complain once, but there wasn't a manager to complain to. It was so off-putting. It was it fucked up my session because I knew that he was basically on his personal Instagram account while someone was paying for him. And I just think it's so disrespectful. So disrespectful, but thinking selfishly, like, if you're fucking up my session, like, is there other people that are not saying something? Like, this poor bastard paying you however, many, you know, however much. I assume it's got to be a minimum of 60 quid, right? Yeah, yeah, right here. Yeah, uh, and there's there's two there's two lines on that. I think there's the adult who makes the decision to want to continue to put up with that, so the customer still has the right to say no, thank you. Yeah. Um. But equally, yes, you know that that was my that was my main focus, and I think I've I've carried that from now until from then until now. You know mm. that that hour is paramount to the client that's that, that's what i'm interested in that's what i want to make sure that they come out of it not only knowing that they've had a good session and they can that can be slightly ambiguous in terms of what a good session is but certainly having enjoyed it and feeling like they've they've got their value for money certainly from that perspective and i think that then built long-term relationships and i also looked at clients as uh 12-year investments not 12-week investments or six-week investments you know six year six years i wanted a client down the line and i'm lucky to say that i have that also online as well as one-to-one that's cool um, that's very cool. So yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, I got into personal training and, and then it kind of just built from there to now I've moved to London after two and a half years at Nuffield Health. How did that, how did, how did that come around then? Did you, did you always want to move to London? No, no, actually. Uh, I think it was a bit of a, a life change moment. So I'd been with a, a girlfriend at the time for four and a half years um, and things, we broke up. And there was big changes in terms of moving out, you know, having to live with a friend, kind of, kind of a lot of uh, turmoil at that time. And it was quite difficult, but I think it made me reflect a lot as well. It made me think about what do I want? Where do I want to go? You know, what's, what's going to interest me? What's going to make me feel excited again? Because I'd been working for Nuffield for two and a half years, and there's only so far you can go with that. You know, you're, you're kind of making, I can't really quite remember, I think it was £35 an hour was the session rate, and I'd get a, a 60% of that or whatever, or 50%. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a hell of a lot. So you're not, you're not necessarily, you only got a certain cap. You can only work so many hours, and, and there wasn't really social media at the time. There wasn't online. It didn't exist, so you couldn't expand into that. And I still felt like I needed to keep working and improving myself as a trainer. You know, I wanted to do more courses. I wanted to access better trainers. I wanted to be better as an individual. I wanted to be a better craftsman before um, expanding my a business, if you will, because money wasn't my motivator. It was the thirst of knowledge to go out and be better and better and better to become the best trainer that I can be for the person that's paying for that hour, if you will. Mm. And um, I was thinking about it and and. Uh, the gym that I went to eventually, they were kind of promoting themselves as the European Europe's leading personal training facility. This is UP. It is, yes. And I was interested, and I was like, "Well, absolutely, that's where I want to work." You know, I want to work at the best, be at the best, and that's how I'm going to be the best. And uh, I applied. I think they were looking for personal trainers, so I applied. I sent an email, sent a, a covering letter, if you will, or an email with it with my my CV. 
And I had a response, I think, a few days later. And that response was, we like it, we're interested. And I remember Skyping their owner on the day of the BNBF, or Natural Bodybuilding British Finals, uh, you know, tanned up already. And I had a, a sort of Skype chat and an interview. And it was we had discussions on things like how I acquired clients, you know, what's my background, kind of a bit like this kind of podcast, I suppose. And then he said, look, I want you to come down to London. I think you should come down for the day, find out if it suits you, suits us. Uh, and let's have a, talk, a little bit talk more because it was a big move, right? I'm moving from completely different countries. I think I'd been to London once before and that was when I was 11. Um, and now I'm sort of in my 22 or something like that. No, or later than that, 23-ish, I think. So I went down for the day. Did uh, you, did you when, when making that decision, did you, was that the first time, in, you know, after after breaking up with your then partner, did, was that the first time that you... You ask those big questions. It sounds like that was a real kind of crossroads, or, or was it was yeah. the same kind of conversation before you went to South Africa? Is it? Um, I think the I think it was because of those big life shunts for me. I mean, it, I, I say big, you know, that nothing nothing terrible happened, but yeah, you know, you break up a relationship and you you consider why things maybe failed and what you failed and and how they maybe failed and how do I go forward from here and what do I want really you know I kind of looked at myself in Aberdeen thinking I can stay here and I can earn a, a nominal salary and enjoy myself but you know why would you do that at 23 why would you accept average why would you accept just no risk at all when in reality I had no dependents, I didn't have any kids, I had no debt whatsoever. Um, and in reality, in my head, there was no risk. I, there was only a reward. You know, taking that risk at that young age uh, meant that I didn't have to, you know, pay bills or mortgages or whatever. I could just, you know, cancel my rent that I had with a, with a flat. That was it. I mean, that's the only difference. It's an important question, isn't it? What, it is. what, what do I want? Yeah, what do I want? And I, I like I said, I think I said it before, it was really... I wanted to be better, a better trainer. And working in Aberdeen, I was, and it sounds slightly arrogant, but I was a, a big fish in a small pond. You know, I was excelling in terms of delivering sessions, in terms of sales and whatnot. And the only way to do it was to go into a big pond and be a small fish and, uh, and, and kind of get beaten down a little bit. Um, mm. And that's, that's kind of why I, I came to London. You know, that was what I wanted. Um, and it took me a long time to, to acclimatize to London, probably six months to six, six to 12 months. Yeah. Um, she so landed at, you landed at UP was, was, was it kind of, was it beaten into you? Was there a new way of doing things? Was there a new standard? Was the bar set? Did you feel like a small fish? No, no, uh, honestly, no, I, uh, I felt like I belonged in a sense because I'd suddenly arrived somewhere where everyone loved training. Everyone loved the, the nuances, the details, the, you know, the camaraderie, the, everything about it. We, we all kind of, I, I remember doing courses every weekend. You know, every weekend I'd, I'd work probably five, six days a week from 5 a.m. in the morning till 9 p.m. at night. Then I'd do courses at the weekend and I would just repeat. That would be on a repeat cycle for months and months and months. And I loved that and I lapped that up and it was hard. But having everyone there, you know, loving training like I did, loving training clients like I did, loving working hard like I did. I was like, yes, this is it. I found an amazing place to work. And, and that's what helped continue to, to improve me as a trainer, mm. um, working along these. And it was also that challenge as well. Like you get challenged on, on my beliefs or what I, how I wanted to deliver something. And it was that ability to be able to discuss it as well. Whereas in, in Nuffield, when I was working in Aberdeen, there was only probably one or two of us that really actually loved it. You know, 
the other trainers um, maybe didn't, I didn't feel like they loved it quite as much. They'd maybe turn up a little bit late for the sessions. They maybe weren't quite as interested in them or didn't seem like they were, those kind of things. So mm. I'd suddenly arrived where someone was like, basically I felt like I was cloned like all around the gym. Um, and that was great. I think that was really good for me at that time. Do you think that's a bit of a sign if, you, if, if, you're not, if you're not surrounded by people who are loving what you're doing as much as you? Do you think that's a sign that you, you, uh, should, you should question or move on or... I, th I think so. I, again. I, I suppose it's it. It really depends on on the situation. Obviously, the context. You know, some people obviously fall into very good jobs with good salaries, and then they, they have a, a a good life out of that salary. So making that decision and, and changing is probably quite difficult. Um, and also, you can. I do believe that you can bring up that culture. You know, if you're in a group of individuals and you're the positive one who continually wants to drive, yes, it's hard work when there's a. a, a a moaning Nancy in the corner, but you can you can potentially lift that a little bit higher, mm. um, and you can find your own purpose or your own drive, your own motivation within that. And then some people feed off that, um, but it does help when you have other people around you because it's quite difficult to continue to keep that motivation high. Mm. You know, it, it's quite tiresome, it's quite difficult. Um, but if you can, sometimes it can help raise the group. But again, if you have other people around you that help support you with that, and sometimes maybe lift you a little bit as well. Um, certainly that age as well. I think because 23, you're still trying to discover what you're about, who you are. You're a bit, well, I certainly was, a bit bullish, a bit arrogant at times. Um, and having someone who's a bit better than me, <laughs> a bit older, a bit bigger, to say, no, Gordon, that's not right. <laughs> that helps. Well, so what, what was the trickiest, what was the most difficult part in that six months then, that, that acclimatization period? Um, massive change. I mean, it was going from a city of 300,000 people to now a city of what nine million something like that in, in inner London, um, so you've got transport networks, you've got cost, you've got somewhere to live. I I think I lived in about four or five different apartments in that sort of six six to eight month period, and that's really hard. Like being a nomad is not fun, um, and and also trying to make friends because you're you're. I think I had two or three, one or two friends maybe in from Aberdeen that were living in London. And they lived, of course, the other side of where I lived. So it'd take you an hour or two hours to get to them and back again. Everywhere takes about an hour, 15 to get anywhere, right? Yeah, and it's really difficult. So it, it was kind of, it was going from that, um, making friends as well. You know, even though London has such a dense population uh, at that time, still social media wasn't that big. Um, and you didn't have things like Tinder and whatnot. Um, so, so meeting people was quite difficult and certainly someone who seems extroverted to slightly you know conscious of trying to talk to people and and saying hello and that kind of thing is quite difficult certainly and outside of an environment that i felt quite safe in um being the gym and that was quite difficult so it was all lots of moving trying to make friends have a career you know all these kind of things all at once and cost and whatnot as well was was challenging yeah so what 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 if someone says why, why do i train with you and not the other God, I've got no idea. Ten thousand trainers, and, and what 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 is it about about you? What should I kind of say to someone that makes you special? Well, I don't think I'm special. I think that's quite important. Okay. Um, because there are a lot of really good personal trainers out there, fantastic trainers, and they could probably offer you a, a slightly different personality to me. It doesn't necessarily mean they're they're any better or worse than than me necessarily. And I, I don't think that I don't think my skills as a personal trainer make me. Uh, unique in any way as such but I think that what makes you unique then? Um, that's, that's a tough question um, 
I, I don't. I, I honestly don't think I'm necessarily unique. I think that's that answers my answers the first sort of part of that question as well. Um, but maybe maybe me seeing myself as not unique is unique. Right. <laughs> it's certainly in a narcissistic yeah. world of personal maybe, training. Maybe you're the only personal <laughs> trainer. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm great. Um, why am I different? Um, it, uh, that's hard. I, I don't know how to answer that. I think that I. I offer what I can and everything that I can to a client. You know, I'll I'll always be on time, if not early. Um, on the odd occasion, it sometimes happens, but uh, I'll always be on time or early. I'll always commit to that hour for the client. I'll always commit to programming for them to make sure that we get the best out of what we can. Um, I think I don't think those things are necessarily unique, or they shouldn't be unique. But maybe they are. Maybe they are unique in the service industry that we we work in, or certainly I work in. Um, and why would someone want to train with me over, say, someone else that's just down the road? That's for them to think to decide. Mm. Um, yeah, that's really hard. I don't know. I think that's yeah. So when I when I first came across you as a as as a as a trainer, but also, I guess I I, I guess you're a trainer who you you felt like there was a I felt like there was a brand there from the beginning as well. There was a, there was a voice that kind of like had you know very kind of strong opinions. One of the things that I, I, I sensed was you really don't mind a little bit of controversy. How how have you positioned that? Have you always just thought, fuck it, I'm going to be myself and I'm going to say what I want? Or have you used that kind of, you know, the energy that controversy creates to your advantage at times? I, I don't think I ever thought to myself, right, I'm just going to be me. I was just me. Um, and I, I, th I think that I think I could probably contextualize this a little bit in terms of what you're sort of getting into in the sense of I, I never, first of all, it never started off in the idea of A, I want to become an online coach. Uh, B, I didn't really look at things and go, I want to make X amount of money. I want to drive revenue. I want to create funnels and do all this kind of thing. I, I wanted to answer the young man that I was when I was 16, 17, 18 and training in the gym. And I looked back at that when I was sort of 24, 25, and I thought, I'm angry. I'm angry because people have been selling me things, selling me the wrong things. Uh, I had to search and look for things, and I wasted a lot of time and energy and uh, money. And I felt really angry about that. And I was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be angry on the internet, <laughs> um, if you will, in a, in a sense of I just wanted to help people ensure that they didn't waste that time. They didn't waste that money. They didn't waste... Uh, effort in something that was either meaningless or really only created a very tiny benefit potentially. Um, and that's how I wanted to go about things. Um, so I don't think it was really, it was more about me wanting to answer the questions of that young man that I was then mm. uh, and then take them into the now and, and then just continually discuss that and open it up. And my bullish behavior, I think, came from that sort of young anger, I suppose. Um, and you know what, maybe I could have refined it. Maybe I could have been better in the way that I used some of the language that I did or the discussions and things that I had with people. But that, I, I wouldn't be sitting here now <laughs> if I'd done that. I just decided that that's the way I wanted to be and that's how I was going to do it. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely lost sleep over some, on some conversations that I've had with people um, and discussions and things. Um, and I suppose that you can't really put that across over written word as, as well. Um, 
but I, I felt like I was I was a crusader. I was on a campaign. I was doing something that I felt was right, and I wanted to to continue to do it. And a lot of the people that if if that's what they were doing, if they were selling these products, for example, that that were incorrect in my in in the way that I saw things or understood things, um, then why would I necessarily want to be friends with them? You know, it's not about being friends. It's about working objectively and working with the best facts that we have available. Mm. Yeah, because I, th- I think when I when I when I when when you first came onto my radar, there was it was it was almost th- that that moment where, and it sounds crazy to say it in a way, but evidence-based research mm. which is basically like saying like truth <laughs> became a thing no, no hope in a whim yeah exactly exactly um I, and i do you know what? i i i guess i came from the fit i came into the fitness industry as as a businessman so i didn't go through the trainer route so i i i was unaware of some of the kind of simmering you know london feuds um, and you mentioned you mentioned a minute ago, like there's there's some co- kind of conversations you 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 regret. Like, do you have a different voice now? Are you still just being yourself? Are you a bit more kind of not grown refined? Up? That sounds that's, <laughs> grown up sounds. No, you sounds should say that. Yeah, it is. You know, when yeah, I'm 23, you're not grown up. You're yeah. So do you, have you have you changed your voice? I don't know. I, I'm in this this uh, this decade of reflection. I think when you, I don't know, but I'm in it. Um, but when you turn 30, things are a bit different now. Um, when, when I was 20, you know, I go back and I think about risk. I didn't have any risk then. There was no risk. There was no responsibility, really, un- un- unless it was myself, my selfish, selfish self. You know, now I have a mortgage. I, uh, I have a... Laura's not a dependent. She's very independent. But I have us to think about. You know, the, the buying decisions that I make, um, the, the sort of choices that I make have to influence us. Not just me. So Laura's your fiance. Yes, she is. Yes. And being thirty-one now, I think that it's important that I refine my voice a little bit from that perspective. I don't know whether I still want to continue like I did previously. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Um, but I think I'm in that kind of interim period of deciding what I probably want and how I want to, how my voice wants to continue to move forward. Mm. Um, Are you finding your client base is is changing because of that? Do you think you? I mean, for, is is your average client getting older as your as your voice becomes refined, or are those two just happening naturally together? Um. Yes, I think I've always attracted sort of the the late twenties, um, mid to late thirties, even older, sort of forty, forty five year old individuals. Um, and I think from a business perspective, and again going back to the roots of where I initially started with my goals of having a client for twelve years and not twelve weeks, for example. I think that targeting or discussing more uh, important points about people who are in their 30s, who are in their 40s, is probably going to be better from a longevity perspective in terms of my business. Mm. Because I think that these individuals have built their careers already. They're less interested in necessarily just looking good. I think there's an important aspect of feeling good um, and what that entails. And then trying to help an individual at that age find purpose and direction with their training by, yes, lifting more weights potentially, maybe improving the way that they feel with their shirt off. But it is about a bit more about feeling and finding that balance. And I think they are more interested in a long-term investment and a relationship than necessarily an individual who's, say, in their mid-20s who wants to do a physique bodybuilding competition. And essentially, you have a higher attrition rate with that. Mm. Um, 
and I think it's also a little bit more fickle, it's a little bit more loose, um, and it's not really, I think, a market or a voice, or I don't think it's a voice that I want to use to target that type of demographic. I think I'd like to move to, to being a bit more of a mature and whatnot, and I think I don't want to come across as an argumentative little teenager. <laughs> On the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I didn't use those words. <laughs> um, do, you, do you see it as your job? Do you see it as a, as a trainer's job to deal with the psychological as well as the physiological? Yeah, we're, we're the handyman of, of health, I suppose, um, where we have to, you know, I think I was talking to a client this morning about this, where the warm-up, for example, yes, it is about preparing for exercise, but I'm also gauging how the client is in terms of their, I'll use the word mindset, and how they're feeling that day. Because sometimes I'll have a client come in and maybe they've had an argument with their girlfriend or maybe they have an argument with their wife, you know, the night before and, you know, they've not really slept very well. And, and I kind of get that tone and it's not going to be where I'm going to say to that client, look, I want you to do 20 more reps. We've got to do this, got to push through. But in reality, they can, they can probably get to the point where there's enough, where we've done what we've done previously to maybe progress a little bit more. But me standing there sort of kind of berating them, getting them to do more and more and more, it's probably not the best course of action, certainly from a long term perspective. So, um, yeah, I think I lost your question. What was that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a point on the psychological side at which po- at a stage where you think there's a responsibility as a trainer to say, I can't handle this anymore. Bring in, you know. If, if this, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Have uh, you ever done that? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, moving things into like dietitians. Um, I think it's quite difficult when it comes from a psychological perspective um, with things like eating disorders and whatnot. You can certainly see telltale signs and I'll effectively refuse business to be honest or or suggest otherwise um because i think that they're not at a stage in which they should be working with someone at my level Mm. i think they should probably move to something that's a bit more um where they should be from a psychiatry perspective from a an eating disorder clinic those kind of things um yes so that that is quite important um Mm. yeah you're gonna like the next question are you an influencer (laughs) no <laughs> Isn't influencer just a spokesmodel? <laughs> Aren't they just the ones that stand at the Grand Prix with the, the you know the cross with the cards up? That's I that's an influencer, isn't it? I think it's about bending over, isn't it? <laughs> or appropriate angles, yeah. It's about yeah. angles. Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's uh... it comes with a lot of luggage. Yeah, but I think at its core, to influence someone. But to me, an influencer is Barack Obama. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Someone who actually has influence, who can change the direction of the world. Um, to me, that's someone. And uh, yeah, I, I suppose we could get a bit philosophical and say that individuals can influence their own little world. So we can, you know, help someone who's potentially homeless. We can, you know, uh, volunteer our time at certain charities and things like that. And, and you can certainly influence things positively from there. But, you know, I think influencer nowadays is really... It, it's difficult to say that because you have 1.2 million followers on Instagram, you can really call yourself an influencer. You can certainly call yourself a brand ambassador or a, a business person or an entrepreneur or whatnot. Because if you start a clothing brand and you've got 1.2 million followers and they want to buy from you, fantastic! You've done a great business transaction there. Doesn't mean you've. I mean, does it mean you've influenced someone necessarily? Maybe, but mm. I don't know. I think influence is it's deeper than than something that's a financial transaction necessarily. Or I like that sponsorship. <laughs> um. You mentioned earlier that the first, I think, I think I got it the right way around. The first ever comp that you entered was untested. Yes. And then the next one was tested. Yes. Um, your, you've you've spent your life clean and quite open about that. What what's 
what's your view on drugs in bodybuilding and more generally the way that steroids and, and other kind of performance enhancing drugs are being adopted as freely as cannabis? This is quite interesting because I do talk about this in my vlog today. In fact, uh, this is a bit of a topic. Um, I think to give you some context on that, it's essentially it's becoming quite a clickbaity thing on YouTube now. You should talk about your first ever steroid cycle, certainly within young men in their sort of mid twenties. Um, you know, showing themselves injecting steroids and using steroids and what kind of drugs that they're using and whatnot. Um, and you know, I don't think it's necessarily right, fundamentally. Um, you know, what what do I think about it? Um, so I have been a natural bodybuilder. Uh, I have certainly considered steroids. I don't think there's any question of that. You know, I always have that little, oh, what? how big could I get? <laughs> you know, how strong could I get? And it's, it's a profound influence. Steroids make a massive difference in terms of how strong you can potentially get and also how you potentially look. Um, but there are also profound side effects as well. You know, male pattern baldness, which is probably would accentuate mine. Um, it can actually make your brain smaller. You know, you get a bit stupider if you take steroids. Um, it can affect things like your relationships, your emotions, all sorts of different kind of things. Um, and I decided to stay natural probably because I didn't want to have to tell my mum that I took steroids. <laughs> that probably wouldn't be a, a very nice thing to have to do because they, they were really proud that I was in the gym working hard and it was me and my genetics and my, my will and motivation and whatnot to do so. Um, and I've also just preferred that, that sort of level playing field because, you know, do you just start taking more if you don't win? You know, do you take more and more and more? And then, then what does it, does it become? You know, again, I think I refer back to the idea of, of uh, looking a certain way versus feeling a certain way. And I think I felt great the way that I looked. So I was happy to continue doing that and I continue to see progress. Um, and how do I think about people who take steroids? They're adults. If that's what they want to do, that's entirely their choice. And, and if it's informed or it's not informed, that's nothing to do with me. Um, that's your free will to do so. Whether I think you should... Uh, disclose that as a personal trainer to your prospective clients or individuals from a social media perspective? Maybe. But then we have Photoshop and filters and things, so we start sort of start pushing those and making sure that people know that we've added X sharpening and Y structure. Um, and I think it fundamentally comes down to the, the idea of the consumer. They should be uh, as best educated as they possibly can. This is, this is what you can potentially maximally achieve from a natural perspective. You know, you could probably go down the lines of guilty until proven innocent, to be honest, certainly with things like Instagram and whatnot these days. So if someone looks like they're on steroids, there's maybe a reasonable chance that they are. Um, and should that then influence your decision as whether or not they're competent as a trainer? Maybe, maybe not, because maybe they take steroids because they want to. That's, that doesn't make them a bad trainer. doesn't mean they're going to push that on you necessarily. Um, they could probably give you some informed, critical ideas of what's good and bad about steroids, if you've ever considered them. Um, so, no, I don't think I worry myself too much about, about that kind of thing within the fitness industry itself. Um, I think it's a, it's a problem, um, but if I continue to worry about it too much, I think then I wouldn't focus enough on my own, my own business and my own training and whatnot. Mm. Um, yeah. So it sounds like if you could possibly change one thing in that space, it might be a little bit more 
Disclosure. Yeah, transparency, I yeah. think, is, is maybe reasonably important. You know, when you see the pictures of individuals when they're like, this is we when I was 15, and here's me now, I'm 27 and taking <laughs> lots of uh, clenbuterol <laughs> and uh, test propanate. Here we go. <laughs> Half a generation later. Yeah, you know, um, and that's quite... But I, again, it's got to come down to the individual, the consumer. Yeah. And, and if that, they want to buy from that individual and they believe that hype and they believe that BS, no one's going to change that. Um, I can continue to put out content and hope for that it maybe hits a nail on the head or discusses points and people are willing to open up and discuss things about bits and pieces. But fundamentally, the consumers are responsible for what they buy and what they do. Um, yeah, I suppose I'm kind of sounding like there, there shouldn't be any regulation, but maybe there should be. I, I don't know. Mm. It's kind of, it's here nor there. I think the, the trainer should be transparent, but people aren't. So mm. it's, it's the way it's going to be. Is that what, what pisses you off most about the industry? I think the, the it's too easy to get into it to a certain extent. Um, and it still shocks me. You know, I live in my own little bubble and world where every trainer that I work with is perfect and they're amazing and they know what they're doing because that's what I've done. I've surrounded myself with people that are good trainers um, because it helps me be better as well. And they question why I do and I question what they do. And we have this open culture, which is important. Um, but there's still trainers out there who just, who haven't been taught properly. You know, there's a, there's a few guys that started at the recent gym that I work at who are very open to discussion, very open. They'll ask questions, they're very inquisitive because they watch me and some of the other guys do, do sessions. And that's fantastic. But how have they come out of their personal training course, you know, a year and a half, two years later, and not know these fundamentals, these basics, like how to problem solve a squat? You know, if someone's struggling to hit depth, why are they struggling to hit depth? How can you regress things and how can you uh, help them progress from that point? And if you don't have those basic skills, it's like coming out of school and not knowing your ABCs or handwriting or whatnot. There are other technical aspects of things that you can probably get better at and you don't need to know as a personal trainer um, straight out of the bat. But I think that's what annoys me the most is it's, it's, it's too easy to get into the industry um, and I don't think you're taught the right skills to begin with. Mm. So was, um, when, you, when you landed in um, London then with the UP, was, was it a steep learning curve just on a technical level? No. Um, I'd engrossed myself, I think, over a number of years um, as a personal trainer at Nuffield Health um, because I, I just wanted to know everything, everything and anything I could possibly know. There was a, a, huge, a crazy hunger to want to know things. And I don't think that, I think I, I definitely advanced in terms of my technical capabilities as a personal trainer. Um, but it, I think the advancement came from the environment and continuing to push me onto new courses, further courses, new people, new experiences. Um, I think that's what that's the biggest thing for me, um, because not not everyone loves personal training as a personal trainer like I do, or some of the people that I work with. So I shouldn't really expect them to maybe be maybe shouldn't expect them to be at a certain level. But I think that if you teach a course that is at a certain level, then my expectation should be there. Mm. I, I think that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. So how you you were at UP for a little about year, eighteen months, year and a half. Interesting. And you made a decision at UP to let me let me line this up so I'm 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 right. You made a decision at UP at some stage to move to freelance. Mm -hmm. Was that also when you started to make that decision to go travelling, or did that come a lot that lot, lot that later? came a lot later? Okay, cool. So um, you moved out of UP basically when when you had enough clients elsewhere, or what was the what was the pulling the trigger? Um. I think the biggest the biggest trigger fundamentally was was how much I was earning. 
I think that I've been quite, I'm quite individual. You know, I, I wanted to, to progress on my own. Um, and I was fundamentally working for somewhere that was taking a large, I felt like taking, I, mean, I, I use that word, it's, it's quite inflammatory, but it, it felt like that's what it was because I was paying for my own courses. I was doing all, uh, funding everything, all my education that was benefiting the clients and also obviously the, the organization that it was, um, but not really feeling like I was getting the reward back from it. Um, and fundamentally, I, I wanted to move on. I wanted to make sure that I was able to continue all these courses. And to be honest, to be able to afford them and afford the lifestyle in London that I necessarily wanted, then I'd probably have to think about directions elsewhere. And freelance was a better direction for me. Mm. So did that feel like a big, was that, was that a moment where you, you, you kind of started to think two, three, five, ten years down the line? No, even, even then I don't think I did. Um, I still, I still didn't really, and again, it was kind of the idea of risk. You know, if I leave UP, what's the worst that can potentially happen? Again, I moved back to Aberdeen. I live with my parents, you know, run, that, run around naked, but no, live the good life. That's always your fallback, <laughs> yeah. the safety net, the ongoing yeah. safety net. Yeah. The Neanderthal <laughs> life out in Aberdeenshire in Scotland. Um, and I've lost where I was going there. Uh, yeah, the, the risk was very low, um, but the reward was quite high, certainly from a financial perspective. Um, and I'm trying to think where I was going to go from there. Um, but yeah, it, it, felt, it felt like the right thing to do at the time, mm. um, to move on and uh, to, to, to take on a new challenge. And I don't think I was looking at the sort of five or ten year plan necessarily. Um, I did, however, at that period, which was quite interesting, became a bit of a junction again. You know, you make a quite a big decision to leave somewhere that uh, I'd loved for, for 18 months. Super well respected as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's got a real name, it's a real brand. Yeah, yes, it has. Um, certainly aggressively. Yes. Um, and I wanted to go that direction. And that point there, social media was picking up. And I was starting to make interesting contacts uh, outside of UP. So I'd gone from working in a very kind of tight-knit community or culture of UP, but then starting to meet other people because social media started to pick up a little bit more. Since so 2013, yeah, right? Yeah, it started to really pick up, certainly for the fitness industry. And I was meeting people, personal trainers who were in like Nottingham, Liverpool, uh, all over London, and they were giving me their perspectives on things outside of the, the UP culture. And that started to open my horizons a bit more and, and interest on various things. And one of them was, was certainly online training. And uh, at that point, I started to build up a, an online client base after I'd left UP. Um, and then that started to just pick up, just like it did when I was a personal trainer as a one-to-one. -one. I was getting referrals. I was posting regularly on social media and, and driving that. And that became quite a, it was quite a natural move. You know, people would ask, oh, do you do online training? Because this was quite a, a new thing. And I'd say, yes. So I'd make up my spreadsheets. I'd do all my bits and pieces that I'd require to help train the client. And that's refined over time. Um, but that was kind of a junction that got us to that point. Mm. But no, there was no, no five-year, five-year, ten-year plan. I think this is, I think turning 30 is the only time that I've ever started to think a bit more about that. All ah, right. Um, so how, was, it, was it a difficult transition? What, what were the challenges at that stage then? Were, were they much the same as the challenges of breaking onto a gym floor? Um, no. I think challenges were slightly different. Um, I think I remember one of the questions I think you, you sort of kind of put to me a little bit give me an idea of, of how the, the, the interview would necessarily go. But I think there was other questions, uh, other, other difficulties in the sense of I started to realize what business is like. And people get upset when people leave businesses to a certain extent and do certain things. And I think that 
I had to learn very quickly who were my friends, who were people that I were was close with, who could I trust necessarily to a certain extent. Um, and I think I had to learn really quickly in that period of what business is about. And business is about financial transactions and threats and whatnot. So it was quite important when I transitioned to a certain extent that these were things that I needed to learn very quickly. You know, litigious things to uh, setting up my own business from a, an accountancy perspective, you know, big adult stuff that mm. came along um, versus me just being a personal trainer. You know, finding clients from a referral basis, from a uh, gym floor basis. It was all about having a business and being clever about the people that I worked with who helped me uh, and ultimately also who protected me and, and did all those kind of things. Hmm. I mean, this is my four years as a lawyer radar going off now, <laughs> but you mentioned being protected yes. and litigious. Yes. What Care to divulge? What, what did, was there a particular event? Was there a particular... Yeah, I, I don't think I'll go too, too far or too deep necessarily, but um, I had to deal with like a, a few months of, of quite difficult times um, after, after sort of moving into to freelance, um, which meant that I had to speak to people that I'd probably never even spoke to and had different languages that I would, would come across and, and also different kind of things. And, you know, understanding that the written word is way more important than the spoken word, certainly when it comes to those kind of situations. Um, and also learning uh, your friends and whatnot, which ones are actual friends that will either be by your side when you're, when you're going through things like that versus people who are actually more interested in finding out what you're up to, what you're doing, so that they can report in different directions. Mm, um, and that's, 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 that's business, right? That's quite difficult. And that's the thing that you don't really learn at entrepreneur school <laughs> or as a naive sort of 20-year-old. Mm. Um, that you can't necessarily... Peop, like For example, lawyers. Um, I remember the situation where uh, I you think that you know, you're... You're, you think that a lawyer is a bit like the, a doctor in the NHS. They're there to help you. When you're in trouble and you need someone to help you, you think that they're going to be there to help you. They are if you ask the right questions and you do the right things. They're, they're there to be the professional, to be able to account for their time, which is, which is fine. That's a business transaction. But they're not there to help you necessarily. They're not there to hold your hand and guide you through things. You have to make decisions yourself and tell them what you want to do. And that was quite an interesting aspect and change um, from what I'd just been. I was a personal trainer. That's all I was. I didn't know these kind of these different kind of things that happened during business. Mm. So was that was it a period of your life? Did, do you still refer to yourself as a personal trainer, or are you now? Are you a businessman? Are you an entrepreneur? Are you what? What? That's a good question, actually. Yeah. Uh, I still, if I was at a wedding, what would I describe myself as? <laughs> um, what do you do, Gordon? It's like, well, I, I kind of... Ex-natural ex natu bodybuilder. Yeah, I could do that, yeah. Um, I've always found it difficult because I don't like calling myself a personal trainer, even though I am. Because most people, like I was on a train, for example, a few weeks ago, where there was a gentleman on the train, and I think I had my camera with me. And he goes, I think he was a bit drunk. Uh, I think he worked in insurance of some kind, broking maybe, you know, confident young man. And I had my camera, he said, oh, do you take pictures? I was like, yeah, yeah, take pictures, thinking, you know, this is this is a camera. Uh, take pictures, like, yeah, he's like, oh, what do you take pictures of? And I said, well, I do it for my social media stuff and whatnot. And he goes, oh, do you want to, what, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a personal trainer. And his immediate response was, I don't need a personal trainer. I was like, oh, okay. So I was like, okay, well, this is a conversation. Um, what is a personal trainer to you then? He's like, well, I don't need the motivation. I can train hard myself. I was like, okay, that's fine. But why do you think that a personal trainer is just about motivation? 
you know, he's like, yeah, but that's that's all a personal trainer does, isn't it? I'm like, well, yeah, sure, sure, okay. So you just do you just do insurance broking? That's all you do. You just sell stuff. He's like, yeah, it's a bit more than that. Oh, anyway, so we got into that discussion, and I think also the 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 slightly you know uh, Hollywood aspect idea of a personal trainer. You know, when when uh, you see them in some movies where they'll go off and sleep with the wife. You know, like the the tennis coach or whatever. That's kind of where Are a person. We're now getting into the reason you really joined. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All the hot women of Aberdeen, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's kind of where I, I took it. So I was kind of like, well, I don't know if I want to call myself a personal trainer because I don't want to have that negative idea on what I do and how I do it. Um, and you also get that discussion point where people are like, oh, should you be drinking alcohol or should you be doing this or doing that? And it's it's quite difficult. And then I kind of describe myself as having an online business, but then that just inevitably turns into me telling them I'm a personal trainer. Um, and I also don't feel like a, an entrepreneur or a businessman um, because I see a businessman as a man is in a suit with a briefcase and he's walking down the street and that's a businessman to me, you know, doing business, having meetings and turning over a million pounds a year versus someone who doesn't turn over that much and who doesn't wear a suit and doesn't have a briefcase um, and wears trainers to work. Um, and I also don't really see myself as an entrepreneur as such because I kind of, again, have this negative type of Americanized Gary V just swearing and shouting about the grind 24-7 idea of entrepreneurs. So I don't know. I don't know what I'd call myself. Um, but yeah, per- fundamentally, I'm a personal trainer. That's what I do. Yeah. Is, is, is the hesitation there, possibly going back to your previous point about there, there being such a low barrier to entry? Do you think it's... Yeah, it's not seen as a profession, really. Which is a shame, isn't it? Because it's you, you've got someone's sometimes spine, yeah, um, but, yeah. but health, happiness in yeah. your hands, yeah. It, loads of things, and and I I don't realise my impact until say I meet um, a client's son, and I remember this quite vividly, and I've trained him for a number of years now, and he was a you know a middle aged man, overweight, uh, struggled to climb the stairs. And uh, we worked together and he lost a sig- such a significant amount of weight that he was buying himself his new Prada suits. He was feeling great about his life. You know, I think, I think even his sex life improved with his wife, all these kind of things, you know, just I think. He, I, and, and that's great. And he tells me that. And I'm like, wonderful. That's brilliant. You know, these are all fantastic. But when his son opened a restaurant and I said, look, I'm going to take a couple of friends down just because it's a new restaurant. Let's, let's go down, have some drinks and, and put some money in the till. And I remember ha- and he came up to me and he went, you've you've added decades onto my dad thank you so much and that was like whoa that's that's powerful stuff and that, that felt, is cool isn't it yeah and that that's that's where you know when someone just looks at me and goes yeah you're just a personal trainer you're like so you know and it sounds crazy but sometimes you actually change people's and families lives because exercise has such a profound uh, effect on people in terms of their clarity when they go into a board meeting to uh their level of happiness how well they sleep more time on earth yeah more time on earth with their grandkids like can kick a ball they can climb some stairs you know and, and that's going back to the idea of you know where i'd maybe try and pull my target market slightly differently from an angry teenager up to something that's a bit more adult and a bit more mature um and that's that's it and that's why i probably have reservations about calling myself a personal trainer because people see it as more of someone who's got a six-pack and eats chicken rice and broccoli mm. versus someone who you know fundamentally can change someone's life profoundly um yeah that's yeah, that's cool. And and fresh, I, I feel the same about fresh fitness food. I think at first it was probably literally about chicken and broccoli. <laughs> um, but as it's matured and become more lifestyle and, and it's been, you know, we've, we've, we're having closer conversations with our client. The real, the real wins are when someone says, time back with my kids or 
yeah. you know, impact on health or, you know, energy, you know, yes. that kind of stuff is very, very super moving. powerful. Yeah, it super is. powerful. So what, what's, maybe it's the, the, the instance that you, you just mentioned there is what are you most proud of looking back over, you know, nine, you say nine, nine years now, nine, 10 years end of this 10 year. Years, yeah. yeah. Um, standing on my, t- on my own two feet. I think I, I don't. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't feel like I've given myself enough credit for being uh, a small business owner. You know, yeah, I don't, I don't have any employees. I don't have any responsibilities in that perspective. Um, but I've managed to craft or uh, continue a business over the course. Because yeah, I was. I suppose I was employed at Nuffield when I was initially a personal trainer, but it was a zero-hour contract, so I had to get my own clients and whatnot. So you could probably see that as a relatively self-employed life for nearly a decade. Um, and I've managed to create a business that helps support me and my girlfriend to travel the world for, you know, 366 days in 2017 to uh, buying or being able to purchase my own house. Not with cash. Like, I'd love to be able to buy my own house cash, but, you know, I've got myself a mortgage. This is London after all. Yeah, gone. Yes. <laughs> um, and I managed to buy my own house, you know, without necessarily needing the support of my parents. Um, and at the age of 25, I think that was quite a good achievement. Mm. Um I think that's what I'm proud of myself. I think it gives myself a pat on the back where, you know, I can buy the things I want to buy. I can do the things that I want to do. And I haven't relinquished too much of my time for that. Certainly now, uh, in the past sort of three or four years, I don't feel like I, yeah, I can go to the gym at two o'clock in the afternoon. I can uh, wake up at eight o'clock in the morning if I want to. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what you're I'm proud of. You're saying waking up at eight uh, in the tone that most people would say, wake up at noon. Yes. <laughs> that's a t- personal trainer. God, wake up at eight. God, wasted yeah. half the day. Yeah, I was up at 4 a.m. this morning. So yeah, that's nice. eight o'clock sounds great. <laughs> um, how about the other side? What, I don't want, possibly feeling ashamed or, or regret might be a bit strong, but what, what, what's kind of been a low point looking back over those almost a decade? Yeah, it probably was that interim transition period into full-on freelance or setting up my own business. Um, you know, I lost a lot of sleep over that time. That was a really, really, probably the most stressful time I've had ever in business was the difficulties of having uh, uh, an individual or individuals um, legally, financially, and professionally challenge your integrity um, was, was really difficult. That was a, that was a tough six months. Mm. Um, and and I think it's it's when it's when it becomes something it seems more personal as well, um, and that was that was a really really tricky time. Mm. I think I'd, I'd love to talk more about it, but I think fundamentally it's in the past. It was there. I understand why it was done, how it was done, um, and if that's how they want to behave and, and do things, then yeah. by all means, that's that's your that's your prerogative. Um, it sounds like it hit home so much be- because integrity is clearly. Yeah. It means a lot to you, right? It does. Um, it does, yeah. It does. You know, that, that's when you get to your grave, that's all you really have. I don't think you have, you don't have the money in the bank. You're not going to use it. You're dead. Really expensive <laughs> um, coffin. Yeah, yeah. Very, and a, a massive gravestone. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think your integrity, you know, how, you, how you've treated people um, is fundamentally going to be how people remember you and who's going to turn up to your, your funeral, I think. Mm. Um, this, yeah. I, I might know the the answer to this because I think you gave it earlier, but I, I I like to ask people what their biggest source of inspiration is. Is that is that that thirst for knowledge, or has it changed over the last nine years? 
Yeah, it certainly has. Oh, definitely. You know, I used to look up to the likes of Steve Jobs and Muhammad Ali and uh, uh, Bill Gates and Richard Branson, you know, these individuals um, who have obviously achieved great things. But then I think as you become a bit older and a bit more critically minded, you realize actually a lot of these people are dicks. <laughs> you know, they, they've had incredible, they, they, they inspire me because of their incredible drive, uh, their incredible direction this is what i want this is what i'm going to achieve this you know i'm, I'm going to get there and that that's incredible you know that that's in, infectious absolutely when someone has that incredible motivation and want to do something um and drive certainly but then you kind of read into these people like steve jobs towards the end of his life wasn't a very nice man you know he was uh, involved in lots of legal issues lots of uh punishing and pushing people and doing lots of things that weren't very nice. Equally, Muhammad Ali, in, in a sense, yes, he drove a lot of the kind of race issues within America at the time, but he bullied his way to become a heavyweight champion. You know, he forced people to have fights with him. He, he called people names. He, was, he was, wasn't a very nice person. And I think I now, as a 31-year-old, seek more inspiration from the people who are the working class heroes, the individuals who maybe maybe didn't have the want to, to risk things because they had a mortgage, they had children when they were young, they had responsibilities outside themselves and they've gone to work each and every day to complete what they need to complete to be able to put food on the table and have their kids enjoy their lives and their wife to enjoy themselves and even maybe some leftover for themselves. To me, that's probably more inspiration now than necessarily you know, a collection of individuals who are, you know, quote-unquote, at the top of the, the sort of financial mm. <laughs> uh, thing. Interesting. So you mentioned um, earlier about traveling. Um, how did you, when did you make that decision with, with Laura to go traveling? Because I, I, I've, I mean, just to set the scene, Gordon mentioned 366 days. That was 366 days traveling. Um, starting off with your girlfriend, ending with your fiance. Yes. Like, that is Tim Ferriss millennial mm. dreamlike all rolled up into one scenario. So from the moment you made the decision to do that, which I assume was, was quite a, quite a few months, if not longer before you actually left, um, how did you go about making that a reality? So I, I've always seen parts of your life. You kind of have these like two, three, four, five year cycles of doing stuff. Um, I've never planned it necessarily. Um, but I feel like I get kind of itchy feet to do something new maybe three years in. And I go, you know what, I want to try, let, let's try and take things up a notch or do something different or, you know, I don't know, take a different angle. And it kind of got to the point where I was 28. Um, online business had been doing really well. You know, it become 50 to 60% of the total revenue that I was generating per year. So it was, it was a good income. Um, I'd... Then had this discussion with Laura and I kind of thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to turn 30 soon. I know this girl's going to be my wife. Like I want her to be my wife. I didn't know she was going to be. She had still had to say yes. <laughs> uh, I had confidence that she wanted to be. And I was like, I'm going to marry this girl. We're going to have children. We're going to settle down. And, and this is what I want to do when I'm, you know, in my 30s. The time is now. Like if, if there's no time to do something, if there's never time to do something, you've just got to do it. You've got to take the bull by the horns and go and do it. And that, that's what I looked at that idea of going traveling. Um, was the only opportunity I'm ever going to have was then. And that's where I was going to be able to do it. I also had a friend who was going to rent my house from me. So we had that organized, which was great. So everything was taken care of. And 
I decided probably, well, we sort of discussed it. It was sort of, I, I remember sitting on a plane home. It's one of these weird sort of movie things. I remember sitting on a plane home. I think it was 2015, December, after traveling uh, home for Christmas. And I'm coming home for a new year uh, to, to see Laura and her family. And I remember just sitting on that plane, that beautiful moments where you just get on your own, there's no one around you, you're just traveling on a bus, a train or whatever, headphones in, and I'm thinking, I've, we've, I've got to do this. I've got to see what Laura says, we'll have a talk about it, and you know, we've got to go traveling. So we had a chat about it, she had some trepidations, she, you know, we kind of went over it for maybe three or four months, and then in that three or four months I decided that I needed something that would make me different. So I decided to vlog uh, daily for 210 days a natural bodybuilding prep. Right? And that was going to be my marketing tool. I didn't really know what it was going to be, didn't know how it was going to come across, but I just bought the bloody camera, turned it on, and made videos every single day. And those videos became something where you talked about that evidence-based aspect of things, where everyone was talking about having a pragmatic approach to training and, and nutrition and being able to be a bit more systemized and evidence-based, you know, just willingly or willingfully doing something without actually knowing whether it does actually something or not. Um, and I wanted to take that and then apply it into the real world and go, right, people are talking about it, but they're not doing it. There's lots of geeks sitting there going, oh, yes, this uh, changes this, and we've got to do this, and that's that. A study in 1925 did so. And you're like, right, let's do it. So I applied that, and I took it on a journey. And I also wanted it to be something where it was a real person taking on a challenge of getting as lean as physically possible. So the challenges that come along, like your relationship, like your food relationship, um, being busy, going out, having a birthday, uh, eating food out in restaurants, all these kind of things, and how I overcame those to be able to get to the point that I wanted to get to. And that basically drove my business to the point that I'd never even thought would be online. Um, you know, I think it was, it was probably about, it drove up to about 75 to 80% of my revenue for that year was just online. And, and that helped me sort of build a, a really strong relationship with a lot of clients, which obviously remained with me when I went traveling. Um, but the course of that year, and then, you know, we, we just went traveling uh, after that. Um, and that was kind of it. Yeah, it, was, it, it kind of wasn't really something that built up or brewed up for a long time. I wasn't, you know, in 2004 going, I really want to go traveling one day or whatever else. It was just kind of like this, this moment where I was just sitting quietly by myself, just thinking, what can I do next? You know, I'd been working at the, the vault or the gym that I was working at for a while for like three and a half years. And it was that point I was like, well, I've got to do something else. What can I do now? And that was online business is doing really well. The time is now. I'm going to turn 30 soon. I can see myself marrying this girl. If we're going to do something, we've got to go, tra go traveling, go see the world. Uh, and that's just what we did. Nice. So how did you structure your time when you were, when you were traveling? You're still running. I mean, I assume you lost a couple of clients when you left London, but... Pulled 80% of them, whatever it was, across. Mm -hmm. How did you structure your time between finding yourself and being an influencer online and all that kind of... <laughs> no, I'm joking. How, how, how did you structure that kind of balance between traveling around the world with the love of your life and, and actually keeping your foot in? So morning, mornings and evenings, and it wasn't easy, don't get me wrong. I think there's certainly a huge amount of things that had changed um, from the direction that I'd take with like posting regularly, um, but I, again, I don't think it, even though there's a lot I'd do differently, there's not a lot I would change because of the experiences that came of it. Um, the way I worked around things, I'd get up in the morning, answer my emails, you know, uh, potentially try and come up with some ideas or content. And then at, at, again, late in the evening, I'd follow up again with some emails and whatnot. So it was kind of like just two parts of the day. So we'd get up early, do some work, 
late in the evening, do some work. And, and that's the beauty of online where I don't have to be anywhere at any time. I can just, I just need to, rep- I need to make sure I'm there and I can reply. Um, because technology now, there's internet, you know, I was Skyping clients whilst in Burma, <laughs> in Kalaw, in Burma, sitting there just Skyping clients. Um, I think one of the biggest things, which is a bit weird, and this was really weird, um, when clients, so clients did thought I was still located in London, a lot of them. Right? I didn't really try and publicize too much about what I was doing and where I was. Please say you carried like a painting of Big Ben or something. <laughs> a green screen behind me and there's, there's a queen just walked past. Um, yeah, and I'd tell a client, I'd be like, oh, I'm in Japan. They're like, oh, really? I'll, I'll call you back when you get back from your holiday. I was like, no, no, I'm going to be here for like three months. What do you mean? Oh, I'm traveling. What do you mean you're traveling? I'm traveling the world. Oh, so you're not going to be back in London? No. Okay. And they just find it really weird that I wasn't in the UK, even though they're in friggin' Ireland. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I find that a bit weird. I don't think I'd publicize it as much. I just wouldn't tell people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where I did previously. And I think that also then changed my ability to, to get more clients. Because I had a few people email me and go, oh, I would have trained with you, but you're obviously traveling. Okay. <laughs> it's still still possible to contact me just as you would normally. There's yeah. no difference. You know, I'd work in coffee now. shops yeah. or whatever, or I'd always book Airbnbs or hotels where they had Wi-Fi. So there's never an issue there, but it's just quite funny. That was one, uh, one quite weird thing. Oh, you're not in London. No. Oh, but I want to train with you. Yeah, that, that, you still can. Yeah, it's perfectly fine. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I guess that, yeah, I guess it's the connection between them thinking, I don't know, I wonder what it's that is. It's consistency. Yeah. I think it's, 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 it's understanding that you are there and that's what you're doing. And I think people just like to know that. Hmm. You know, it's, it's a massive shock to them that I was in Australia or whatever. So you vlogged for 210 days straight. Yeah, every day. That's fucking impressive. Yes, I don't know how I did it. <laughs> if this is the next question, um, yeah. Well, I think that the next question is something that I mean. One of the things that I and genuinely, this is this is sincerely impacted my view on content production, social media, the overwhelming importance of consistency when it comes to content. And I think I jokingly said before we we kicked this off the show. It's not that I don't think your stuff is quality. That's not where this is heading. But like, you're someone who's taught me that like, there might be times when the consistency is more important. Do you think that's the case? Yeah. Uh, Well, I think it depends on the client to a certain extent and what the client... Well, yes and no. That's hard to answer because I think there are individuals, young individuals at the moment who are on social media who produce a lot of content. And it amazes me how much they produce the content. But most of it is junk. Like, it's just, I read it now. I'm like, this is, it's not, it's probably because it's not talking to me. It's not talking to me as an individual. Maybe if it was someone who was producing as much as they do. And we're talking, you know, 20 Instagram stories a day. They're doing a Facebook personal post. They're doing two or three Instagram posts a day, you know, that's a lot of content. Um, and it's, it is a lot of it's just fluff. It's a lot of it's just junk. It's just not interesting. It doesn't appeal to me. But it's, it seems to be uh, getting a lot of traffic and a lot of interest from people. And I think that maybe even also plays into the idea of the algorithm where it sort of throws a pebble into the pond and it, it ripples out as far as it, it feels like it gets likes and comments and shares and emotions and all that kind of thing. Um, and if you produce a lot of those, then you get a lot of pebbles and they, that hits a lot of people. Um but I, I think it depends on the individual that you're potentially targeting. Um, and I think people who are 
critically minded to a certain extent may just turn off. They might just not be interested. You know, if you're just constantly coming up with content that just doesn't mean much or anything, are they going to listen? It's like Gary Vaynerchuk. I think he's a good example and, and I use him as an example and he does sometimes produce content that I go, actually, give me 10 minutes, I'm going to watch and listen to this. But there's a lot of his content, I just go, <sighs> quiet mate, stop talking, please. I, I, I find that I have to switch, I have to almost have a little bit of a detox from people like that. Like literally unfollow yeah. and come back and, you know, yeah. Um, so, but then uh, you know, I look at my 210 days of vlogging. I'm sounding like that was that was golden content all the time, and I don't feel it was. And I was certainly editing some of these videos, thinking these are shocking. <laughs> this is just boring. But people, like again, you can't really tell what people are taking from it because you don't get any reaction. You only get that like. But a lot of the time, people don't like anything. They don't comment. They're, they're like very British. And they don't say anything. You know, they'll either agree with it or disagree with it, but they just won't say anything. And I think that turning up every day like I did on the early days of being a personal trainer in the gym, um, you you have ultimately will hit emotions with some people and, and maybe a lot of people. Um, would, that, would that be one of your kind of biggest piece of advice? Like if someone is, if someone is kind of embarking on like, I'm going to, I'm going to stick to something. I'm going to pr produce some content because I want this output. I want to get 10 clients. I want to set up that kind of, automated online blah 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 where i can go try whatever it is do you think like just consistently turning up is that like is that something you, you, you i think you you're you, the way you way you describe that tactic so you're kind of coming up with something that's like i want 10 clients or i want um to, to i don't know sell packages or whatever else and that's your target um i think it's almost bigger than that it's a case of coming up with what is what is your what's your purpose like why are you putting out this content you know, if you're just putting it out to get clients, people read between the lines. They're just going to think you're selling to them. Like when you walk into a, a, a sales room in a car showroom, you know you're going to be sold to. So you're already going, no, I don't, no, no, I'm not talking to you. No, no, I want my free coffee. Let me alone. Whereas if if they maybe change the way that they do things, I think, and they had a, a bigger purpose, where they think they try to do, you know, they have BMW, the greatest driving machine or whatever, and all these kind of slogans. I think if, as a, an individual, as a personal trainer, there was an enemy, and a common enemy was the, the bullshit that was out there in the fitness industry, and I wanted to attack it. It wasn't about getting 10 clients. It wasn't about getting X amount of revenue over a course of a year. And I think you can refine into that once you've created all of that content and that buzz and that interest and that drive. I like that. That's very cool, actually. So it's not just about turning up. It's, it's, it's making sure you're offering something of value, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can turn up and be like, oh, I ate this Krispy Kreme today. But what does that mean? Like, what, what, what's the purpose of you telling someone that? Mm. Um, There's probably someone out there scribbling notes. Around. Yeah, yeah. A great idea for, a, for my next post. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's important that you have an, under, an underlining foundation for why you might be saying something and how you're saying something. And then just constantly providing value and and doing it very regularly. Mm. Um, and if you have that baseline of purpose, it becomes quite natural and you can quite, you can start to pick things out from your daily routine that might help an individual. Mm. You know, like when you're walking past a certain food shop, what might you eat, for example? Where when you go to the gym and there's no dumbbells available, what can you potentially do? And you can create these stories and this interest based on that baseline purpose of helping an individual succeed at X goal, yeah. muscle building, fat loss. That is, because um, I, I, I am a Marmite, person with Gary V and that's one of the things that I do love about him that that phrase um offer value with no strings attached yeah yeah it's 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 
Powerful, very powerful. So mentioned a couple of times, um, and you, you've you've thrown the idea of a ten-year plan back in my face violently. Um, and you also talk about these two to three-year sprints in your life, or two to three years where you suddenly feel you know itchy feet, change direction. What does the future hold? Uh, I think I'm, uh, I know it's a bit boring actually compared to what it used to be. Uh, when there wasn't a plan, that's quite interesting because you just kind of like sod it. We'll just go and do this today. Um, but now I think I'm realizing the ideas of responsibility that I have, you know, the change that I'm going through in terms of a, as a, a young man into an actual man, an adult, um, who can't just wander off to Vegas when he wants to. Um, and I'm starting to consider things like pensions, you know, actually having a bloody pension. When I was 24 and I started my own, started my own company, I didn't think, oh yeah, I need a pension. I just worked. I just did work and that saved some money and spent it on a house or spent it on going to Vegas. Um, so I'm now thinking about pensions and investments and, you know, do I now move into ideas like a second home? Do I rent out one? Do I set up something other than having personal training that's maybe asset based that can accrue interest and, and uh, money over time? Um, thinking about ISAs, <laughs> all these kind of things that are a little bit more, int- uh, a little bit boring compared to the, the entrepreneur life that's sold out there and actually becoming a bit more of a clever businessman with how I do things, the way I do things um, than the kind of bullish, angry Scotsman on the internet telling people that they can they can eat their skittles and not die. Um, so What's that's that's the future, I think. Um, right. That's a big change direction. Yeah, it, angry Scottish rants about skittles yeah. to ISIS. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. Um, I think we've just stumbled across the title of this podcast as well. Pretty much, yeah, angry Scotsman <laughs> on a podcast. Um, yeah, that's kind of it. I suppose that's the future is cool. Building something. So to wrap this up, I ask. Um, I ask this of everyone. I want you to imagine a scenario where you could produce the perfect blueprint to run your business today. And you get to go back to 2009 and hand that blueprint to your younger self. And there's, uh, there's a few points in that blueprint about how to, run, uh, how to run that perfect business. So, what's the most important characteristic I normally say entrepreneur here, but we've decided you're not an entrepreneur, a businessman, or a PT. What is the most important characteristic that that the future Gordon Greenhorn will need? Um, do I, I kind of thought about this a little bit, um, and I think the biggest thing for me is it's kind of one of two things: being less bullish and uh, not burning bridges. I I think when I was uh, when I was younger, uh, I had. I felt like, I certainly look back on it, I had a direction, I had a confidence bordering on arrogance probably to a lot of people. I knew what I wanted, I knew what I was going to do it, and that's where I went. There was a selfishness, I just went for it. And ultimately, I didn't necessarily, I kind of had my priorities, and then there was other people's priorities. And there's kind of a skill and an art of lining those two things up, and being able to, to, to involve other people's priorities within yours. Because people help people, and I think that, if you as a business owner or an individual can have people around you helping build your business from the way that they might be able to help you in terms of building your empathy or your ability to coach a client to teaching an alternative about certain things in nutrition to strength training to business. I think if, if I was a young man back then and I was talking to him now, I probably would have tried to encourage him to be able to maintain relationships even if I found it difficult to do so. Hmm. and hold those relationships. And I think that would potentially benefit 
me long-term in my business um, and help continue to build it to where it is now. I think that would be, yeah, that would be it. I like that. What's the most important daily habit? It's funny because I don't have any. <laughs> um, important daily habit. The little things, you know, make your bed, brush your teeth, do little bits, start the day with a win. Like that. This might be the next, next one might be the same answer as the first. The biggest mistake to avoid. Biggest mistake to avoid. I think you can do it all on your own. One piece of advice when it comes to managing your finances. Save. <laughs> you know, I had the uh, was it compound interest. Yeah. <laughs> Two pounds a day. Just put it in the bank and leave <laughs> it there. <laughs> um, one piece of advice when it comes to sales. Be transparent. Uh, I remember when I was working at UP, um, we had a, and it, we were trying to push referrals, I think it was. And I literally went up to one of my clients and said, I'm trying to win this competition. Uh, if you have any, anybody who you work with who might be interested, I know you've talked about them before. If you can either give me a name or an email address, or if you could tell someone about it to contact X, Y, and Z, I'll win. Rather than saying to them, Oh, you know, uh, you said that David was interested in personal training. You know, is there any chance I can give him a phone or just just be straight up? Just be like, look, uh, or you know, with clients, it was like, um, rather than going up to them and trying to sell them something necessarily, I just talked to them, just like a human being, like a person in the gym. There wasn't an intent of sale. Um, like that. Yeah, that was it. One piece of advice when it comes to marketing. Marketing, yeah, because marketing again is kind of ambiguous a little bit. But I suppose have be professional. I think with your marketing, um, you're still a business, so everything from the details like your email address, don't have it as you know, big tits fourteen at hotmail dot com, right? <laughs> you know, have it as you don't use that anymore, do you? No, no, no. I gave that one up actually. Yeah, I should have probably kept it. It'd been good for the, uh, the influencer thing that we've been talking about. Um, yeah, have it as mail at gordongreenhorn.com. Uh, you know, have your font types all the same. Good plug, by the way. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's interested in personal training. Um, and, and have it all, have, have it, uh, have it across the board where you, you're at least, you know, coming across as a professional. That's marketing, I think. Um, yes, you can, you can use, uh, you can use swear words if you really want to. You can talk the way you want to talk, but fundamentally, keep your fonts the same, have a logo, have a shop front of some kind, you know, have, that's quite an easy message to have. You know, if someone recognizes something, they know that's yours. Mm. Um, that's marketing as well. You know, that's not, that's, marketing isn't just standing up with a big sign saying, free personal training session. Um, which worked by the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, final question. As you are parting ways, you have, you have a second to hand, to, to, to say one final piece of advice as you're handing over the blueprint. So what do you say to your younger self? <laughs> I think I said to you earlier, I would just tell my young, my younger self would tell me to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Gordon Greenhorn, self-confessed angry Scotsman. 
The truth of the matter is, Gordon is the complete opposite. He is a happy, sociable, switched on businessman, and we can learn a lot from him. So, what are the key takeaways? Firstly, there are some really useful universal lessons here. Always be professional and punctual, dress and look the way your clients expect you to, and constantly reinvest in yourself. In particular, continual learning often separates the successful from the unsuccessful, and we should learn from Gordon's goal of becoming a better craftsman. Similarly, we need to understand what our client audience and client base wants, and then ensure that we are delivering on that precise thing. You may have noticed that Gordon struggled to explain what makes him unique, which I think reveals more than he realized. He's humble, he's modest, and he's clearly never felt the need to fit in with the crowd and blend in. Being himself is what makes him unique, and it is this that has allowed him to build an engaged audience and an online client base that has, in turn, enabled him to live out his dreams and travel the world. It's this last point that I absolutely love, and it ties back to my opening words. Gordon took the time to ask the simplest of questions. What do I want? He decided he wanted to go traveling with a woman he loves and then put a plan in place. A plan that, with equal simplicity, directed his passions, skill set, and experience at ensuring he achieved his goals. The rest was hard work, sticking to his core values and consistency. 210 days of consistency, to be exact. My name is Jared Williams, and this has been The Startup Blueprint, the podcast designed for entrepreneurs, startups, and anyone who's ever wanted to turn a good idea into a great business. 